his Seeking Alpha Skill Weinrich, and I'm speaking with Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff. I want to ask you a question about intergener- intergenerational equity, a key area of your past research and scholarly work. 18th century British statesman Edmund Burke famously said, history is a pact between the dead, the living, and the yet unborn. How are we doing on that pact today? Well, not too well, at least in our country. We've been engaged in a generational theft for decades in the entire post-war period, starting really with Eisenhower. We've been taking from the young and giving to the old in many different ways, most of which we've kept off the books so that we've now accumulated a massive amount of liabilities uh, of debts that are not reported. Uh, we economists calculate these uh, in terms of the fiscal gap, which is the value today, the value in the present of all the future outlays that the government is projected to do. So outlays on everything from servicing official debt to paying for the president's lunch to uh, making Social Security uh, benefit payments, uh, all those expenditures projected out into the indefinite future based on uh, Congressional Budget Office projections, we can make those projections, get the value in the present uh, of those uh, of that spending, subtract the value in the present of the projected taxes to pay for that spending, and then also um, add in the, uh, the net wealth of the country. If it's negative, it becomes um, an addition. If it's, if it's positive net wealth, you subtract it. So it's anyway, it's, um, it, it's a picture of, of uh, the government's expenditures uh, minus its uh, receipts, minus its resources. And in our country, that difference, which we call the fiscal gap, is $200 trillion today. That's about 10 times the size of the official debt that the uh, Congress has been focused on. And what that means is that almost all the liabilities that our country is facing, and these are net liabilities, net of the taxes to cover them, they're, they're being kept off the books. And it's a very simple method for how you uh, build up obligations that future generations have to pay uh, and keep them off the books. You just use words to keep them off the books. You just, uh, you know, for example, you take money from a young worker and uh, you promise to make a, a payment to that worker in the future. Now you could call that borrowing and a promise for repayment of principal plus interest, or you could call that money that you took from the worker uh, a tax and a future uh, and a promise to a future transfer payment. So just that choice of words will determine whether or not that money that you take from the worker today will be included in the government's deficit this year. If it is included, then you've made an made it an, an official debt. Uh, if it's not, if you don't use those words, then it becomes an implicit off the books debt. But when you take money, for example, from workers and promise them Social Security benefits, those are real obligations, real economic obligations, whether they have the same exact legal <clears throat> status, it really doesn't matter because politically, uh, uh, 
that they're going to have to get paid. There's no way we can renege on the payments to 35 million current retirees who are collecting Social Security benefits. We can't cut those benefits 20, 30 percent, for example, starting today. We can't cut the Medicare benefits that are keeping people, uh, you know, taking care of older people uh, or the Medicaid benefits, most of which go to the elderly. So we're locked into these obligations, uh, and in many ways they're actually stronger obligations than the official ones because... How does the United States kind of move to a political um, understanding whereby our children receive roughly the same level of benefits and pay roughly the same amount of taxes as the current older generation does? So we have to do uh, uh, fiscal gap accounting. We have to throw away deficit accounting because it's meaningless. It's a word game. It has no foundation in economic theory. There's not a single economic model that you can write down in mathematical terms where the uh, actors in the model are rational and do not, do not get confused by language in which the deficit is a well-defined concept. So the fiscal gap is a well-defined concept. It's well-defined by the mathematics of our economic models. So the, we need to stop measuring things uh, incorrectly. We need to stop driving in New York with a map of Los Angeles, in effect, and measure the fiscal gap. And the fiscal gap is easily measured. You just take the projections of the outlays, present value them, add in the official debt, and then take the present, uh, subtract the present value of the uh, projected receipts, and there you've got the fiscal gap, $200 trillion. Now, then the next question is, how, uh, what kind of a fiscal policy do we want to make sure that our kids are treated fairly? Well, we basically want to keep, generational equity here requires keeping the lifetime net tax rates that are, that are facing successive generations equal, constant. So our kids should not, over their lifetime, have to hand over 80% of their lifetime labor income to the government, to some governments, uh, state or federal or local, where, whereas we only end up spending, uh, handing over 20%. So the idea for generational equity here is you equalize lifetime net tax rates uh, and as a share of, so it's lifetime net taxation. And I'm saying, uh, look at the present value uh, of an 18 year old's lifetime projected tax payments, net of any uh, benefits they're gonna receive and divide that by the present value of their labor income. And that's a lifetime net tax rate. So that is what's re equalizing that net tax rate for successive 18-year-olds is what's required for generational equity. And we're not on a path to produce that. We're on a path to produce much higher tax rates for future 18-year-olds than, than we ourselves uh, who are older than 18. Uh, if you put us back to age 18, we're, we're going to end up having face a lifetime net tax rate that's much lower than our kids are going to face. And so we have to reform our social security system fundamentally uh, in the U.S. We have to fix our health care system fundamentally. 
to give everybody universal health insurance, but also not go broke in the process. And these things are both easily done, actually. And then we need to have a tax reform that's actually a real tax reform. This one produced a small official deficit, is going to produce a small official deficit measured as a share of GDP. Debt to, official debt to GDP will not be much bigger than it, or probably smaller than it, if anything, than it was, sort of the same. Uh, but the key thing is that the tax reform did not dramatically raise tax revenues, which is what we needed to do. So presumably we would need to either raise taxes or cut costs? Yeah, and the, and the tax hike, to give you an idea about how big a $200 trillion hole is, <laughs> uh, you have to raise uh, every single federal tax by 53% to come up in present value and keep them 53%, those tax rates 53% higher to come up in present value with $200 trillion in extra revenue. So our country, frankly, is bankrupt. If, if, you, if this were Detroit, the creditors would not be lending us any money. Detroit was about 20% under, underfinanced at the time it went bankrupt. The U.S. government is about 53% under, underfinanced. And I actually may have that wrong in Detroit. Uh, I know its pensions were about 20% underfinanced. The entire government operations might have been more like 15 or 10% under underfinanced. So, so probably, mm-hmm. yeah. I should probably rephrase my previous question. It's not a matter of um, cutting, uh, raising taxes or cutting expenses. We should probably have, we should probably do both. Yeah, and if you wanted to cut spending, you'd have to um, cut every expenditure by about a third. So we're talking about all the defense spending, all the uh, spending on Medicare and Social Security. Uh, so we're, t- we're talking about a very big uh, cut in spending starting immediately. So something has to give here. Uh, you have a lot of people listening and uh, reading uh, Seeking Alpha, and they're traders, and uh, they Traders tend to be surprised by, uh, for some reason, by uh, big changes in market valuations. And I I guess they're not really surprised because they've seen it happen. But but it's uh, surprising because the traders tend to trade together. They, they, uh, if they lose money by themselves, they're going to lose their job. So what the traders are trading on is what other people are thinking. And uh, I think the more traders uh, who are listening to this uh, podcast uh, start to understand that other traders are hearing this podcast and hearing similar things uh, and getting into their minds the fact that we have a uh, insolvency problem here in our country, uh, then they will start trading on that information because they think other people are trading on it. And that's going to push up interest rates, and that's going to make uh, money become much more of a hot potato, and that's going to push up inflation, which will push up interest rates even more, because the rates will go up initially because of the default probability going up on U.S. government bonds. But then uh, people will start seeing uh, uh, the cost of holding money being higher, and that will make money more of a hot potato. 
and that will produce uh, upward pressure on prices because faster money is like more money. So uh, we will have at some point a collapse of the bond market and much higher interest rates, and that could certainly uh, lead, as we've already seen, to major revisions and revaluations of the stock market. So this whole thing can become a financial crisis uh, generated by the fiscal side once people understand this is a grave national threat. So, you know, Gil, when you, when you can't pay for things like the National Endowment of the Arts, when you can't pay for things like uh, properly funding the National Science Foundation, uh, when you can't consider uh, expanding NASA's mission to go back to the moon or uh, let alone get to Mars, when you have uh, when you when you can't put together a, a decent national education system uh, where uh, where people or uh, children are being educated starting at age three, which is happening all over the world, uh, where you're falling behind in technology, where you don't have infrastructure investment at the federal level, where you can't afford a $25 billion wall uh, to keep the border safe, whether or not that's going to be effective is another question, but the fact that we can't afford it apparently um, is all these things are in, in indices of um, indications of the bankruptcy of the U.S. Um, fiscal system. And, and yet to challenge you just for, for a moment, um, it seems like all these problems have existed for many, many years now, and yet the bond vigilantes you just warned about haven't really hounded the treasury markets. The, the Greek markets and the Spanish markets, yes, but not the, the U.S. bond market. Well, uh, as I said, the traders trade in, in packs. Uh, I spoke to a, a large number of Fidelity bond traders a couple of years ago, and this was about a year and a half ago, about our fiscal situation. And it was a great interaction. We spent a couple hours. I walked through all the aspects of this uh, problem and where the fiscal gap is coming from and, and why, uh, why the deficit is not a well-defined economic measure and why we should stop. We need to absolutely stop using that as an indicator of anything, that it's just uh, very much like measuring time or distance uh, and taking those measurements seriously, a physicist would laugh at that, given uh, what we know about the mathematics of physics, that it's not that those concepts are not well defined. They're kind of measures in search of meaning. Uh, so at the end of my uh, couple hours talking to the fidelity traders, and all these folks were extremely bright and uh, you know affable and uh, uh, interactive. One of the traders asked me, well, can you tell us when the other traders are going to figure this out because we want to trade five minutes before they do. <laughs> so that's uh, why we see markets crash dramatically because everybody's jumping on the bandwagon of what everybody else is jumping on the bandwagon about. So the fact that the bond market hasn't crashed up till now is no real evidence that it won't crash in the next 10 minutes. You know, your podcast could be the next, uh, the last draw on the camel's back if there's enough information to uh, get across. Now, my perspective here, 
is the perspective of economic theory, but it's also the perspective of other economists. If uh, your listeners will go to a website called theinformact.org, T-H-E-I-N-F-O-R-M-A-C-T.org, theinformact.org, they will see a website that's devoted to trying to pass a bill called the Inform Act, which was introduced a couple of years ago in, uh, in Congress. It's a bipartisan bill. Uh, Tim Penny, who ran with Hillary Clinton as, uh, as her vice presidential candidate, and um, John Thorne, who was uh, the um, senator from uh, North Dakota. Uh, uh, these folks uh, co-sponsored, these senators co-sponsored the Inform Act. So the, the Inform Act requires the Congressional Budget Office and other government agencies like the CBO and OMB to do fiscal gap accounting and generational accounting, which allocates this fiscal gap to different generations and shows the burden on our kids. Uh, the bill requires that to be done, and it didn't get passed. This bill it was co-sponsored by about seven senators, but it was endorsed by, it has been endorsed, and you can see all the endorsements at the informact.com, uh, or dot, .org, I think it is, the informact.org. You'll see that 20 uh, Nobel Prize winners in the U.S. Uh, have endorsed the bill. You'll see that George Shultz endorsed the bill. You'll see that uh, he's the former Secretary of Treasury, State, uh, Commerce, and OMB Director. And one person did four had four, four cabinet positions. Uh, you'll see former uh, OMB uh, uh, heads uh, have endorsed the bills. Former heads of the Council of Economic Advisors. You'll see something like. Uh, 2,000 top economists and less well-known economists from all over the country, from every every top department on down, have endorsed the bill. So, so the economics profession uh, and top and former top policymakers are aligned that fiscal gap accounting is what needs to be done. You just think that uh, the economic problems that exist today could potentially lead to a bond market. Um, crash, which would then yeah, trigger a I global financial crisis. For, I think it's time for the financial industry to take seriously what economics has to say, to take seriously the statements of the written endorsements of 20 Nobel Prize winners. We have never in the history of our profession had 20, this is almost every single American U.S. Nobel Prize winner, uh, they've never endorsed a piece of legislation before in the history of the profession. And apart from maybe nuclear disarmament. So this is very remarkable. And what I'm saying is that the uh, that Wall Street has to take seriously what economics has to say because it's going to bite them in the in uh, bite them in the back, just like we saw in the last century we had twenty two countries that ended up with hyperinflation because their countries were so broke that they had to print money uh, like crazy. So this stuff happens. The U.S. is not immune. The fact that we're big and powerful right now, that's not going to keep us from having an economy that collapses, just like the British economy uh, collapsed and the, and the dollar took over from the pound. Well, uh, when the dollar becomes rather worthless, the yuan or, or some other currency will take over from the dollar. Okay. So we're 10 years past the global financial crisis. It's a good time to look back. To what extent have we addressed or failed to address the problems that caused that crisis? 
and therefore what must be, well, what must we be on guard for regarding the next economic shift? Well, we have to be on guard for um, uh, the same thing we should have been on guard for the last time, which is uh, high levels of leverage and opacity. The, if you have a banking system that is not leveraged, it cannot fail. If it doesn't owe anything to anybody, it can't go bankrupt. So I've been pushing for a financial system that consists entirely of uh, equity-financed mutual funds running every part of the financial system, uh, life insurance, uh, uh, derivatives, trading, uh, uh, standard uh, lending and uh, uh, borrowing. So the entire financial system can be transformed into one that's entirely safe, which is uh, consists of equity financed mutual funds. And I wrote a book called Jimmy Stewart is Dead, which uh, describes exactly how this would work. And it's very, very, very simple. And the book has been endorsed by a lot of top economists, including Nobel Prize winners and Mervyn King, the former uh, head of the Thank Bank of England. So, so I would recommend anybody who's interested uh, in understanding for, for sure how to fix our problem and, and I think w why it really has happened and why it can happen again, to look at uh, Jimmy Stewart is dead and to understand that it's a combination of having a leveraged financial system, and, and our system is still enormously leveraged in many ways that are being reported and also unreported, but also to have full disclosure of all the assets that um, the uh, financial institutions are holding. So in this case, it would be mutual funds, and we should have real-time disclosure and verification of, of assets by a federal agency where it hires companies to do the verification of things like mortgages uh, and works just for the federal government, so there's no conflict of interest. So we can get rid of the entire regulatory superstructure, have a single federal agency that provides this public information about the, um, the securities that the mutual funds are issuing, and then we can have a very li liquid market in the um, enclosed and, and open-end uh, mutual fund shares so that we can actually have more liquidity and this is a modern financial system that can work very well. And it, by the way, some parts of this go back to uh, financial history. Uh, for example, the derivatives would be run through mutual funds called paramutual funds. And par paramutual betting happens at racetracks around the world every day of the year. So if we think through uh, kind of ancient financial institutions and how they can help us uh, in, the in the present and in the future, uh, we'll be ahead of the game, and that kind of connects back to your original question about how the past can inform the future. And the past, um, our forefathers in our country, just get back to the initial question, included Jeff Jefferson and Washington and Adams. They would be aghast to understand the kind of fiscal burdens we're leaving for our children, the immorality of that, of that behavior, the fact that we're uh, systematically uh, disguising and hiding the fact, the truth about that treatment, um, uh, they would just be, they are, I'm sure, rolling in their graves at this point over the way we're treating our children uh, in our country, in the U.S., and in many other countries, China, Russia, they have huge fiscal gaps or places in the European Union, uh, the U.K., many of these countries have big problems. But other countries, including, for example, Italy, have dealt with their long-term fiscal problems 
and the fiscal gap is actually quite small. Uh, Norway has a generational trust, which is called a sovereign, sovereign fund, trillion dollars large, invested all over the world to protect future Norwegians. So many countries around the world have taken uh, the message of fiscal gap and generational accounting seriously and actually acted on it. I'm now doing a project in El Salvador, fiscal gap accounting with UNICEF, because UNICEF understands the impact of uh, engaging in, uh, in uh, in irresponsible generational policy when it comes to children and future children. So, so even the UN right now is focused on fiscal gap accounting and generational accounting. Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff talking about intergenerational equity. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.